Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. Today is Friday, October 23rd, and today we have a very special and distinguished guest. Gary Hall is here. Gary, welcome to the show. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. So I'm going to give a, a, a brief background uh, for our listeners who are not in public finance of your distinguished career. You are a partner with Siebert, Williams, Shank & Co., the nation's largest minority-owned investment bank. You were formerly an investment banker with J.P. Morgan, an attorney with Gardner, Carton & Douglas. You were a White House fellow assigned to the Treasury Department and worked in Chicago under Mayor Richard M. Daley's administration. And Gary is also slated to join the SIFMA board on November 1st of this year. And you were past chairman of the MSRB, which is the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. Very distinguished career. And it looks like you've hit the financial trifecta. I see a buy side, sell side, legislative side. You've hit them all, looks like. Or I can't keep a job, either one. Um, but no, I've had a very, very, very career and securitist route uh, until finding my home here in the infrastructure. One thing that I would mention that's that's critically important um, is also I'm a partner in American AAA Infrastructure Fund um, that's been founded by another part of mine here in Cisneros. And we, we have uh, a lot of tertiary sort of investments around the country I mean, in a proprietary investment way and sort of it's, you know, public infrastructure, which is something that we're really, really proud of as well. That sounds very good. So we'll get into infrastructure in a few minutes, but let's start our um, interview. I want to get to the heart of the matter in terms of state and local governments. We are less than two weeks away before the election. And as of right now, there's no movement on the stimulus talks. So walk me through scenarios. Let's say if the Democrats win the White House and the Senate, which they control Congress, what happens then? Give me a scenario in that situation. Well, it's funny you mention that. I think Citigroup just recently published a report that said that the municipal market would benefit greatly if there were a sort of a democratic sweep, meaning the president, president, uh, presidential election, as well as the Senate and retaining control of the House. And that's large part due to anticipated higher taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, if you have higher taxes, the demand for tax-exempt relief um, becomes a little bit more pronounced. Um, I think the other thought is is that if you had a democratic sweep, you'll see a faster execution of a stimulus package, really one that's designed to help state and local governments attain some budgetary relief, right. and that would give a little more security in our market as to some of the challenges that a lot of our state and local governments are facing with the rising cost of dealing with COVID and uh, the reduced revenues given sort of the economic downturn associated with it. Democratic sort of, you know, sweep would really embolden our market. But that said, um, I, I quite candidly believe even if the current administration is, is retained, especially since we've seen a higher stimulus package, package uh, proposed by President Trump's administration, um, I still think that, that we would have some certainty, uh, get some certainty in our market by getting the stimulus package done. So I'm not at all just totally dissuaded if, if somehow we found that the administration did not change over. I see. But one of the things I would tell you that I'm really, really hopeful for mm-hmm. is that we 
if we can have, if we have a, a true blue wave, I think probably the biggest panacea potentially out there for state and local governments is, is an infrastructure package in addition to, the, to a, uh, a stimulus package, because that's something that is desperately needed. We've got $10 trillion of infrastructure improvement that's needed in our country. We've seen in 2008 how, how, how making funding for shovel-ready projects can be an economic driver and, and for recovery. Uh, so I am hopeful that we finally get a consensus and some bicameral support uh, for an infrastructure package that can really provide some relief, not only to state and local governments, but really help our local citizenry. Well, you're, you're sort of leading me to my next question. Let's talk about infrastructure and specifically P3s, public-private partnerships. Do you see, let's say, with state and local governments stressed out, in terms of um, their financing. Do you see more P3s coming in the short term to sort of at least maintain infrastructure? infrastructure? Well, it's funny you mention it. So, so I think, you know, some education about the evolution of P3s in the country, at least in North America, may make some sense. So, you know, we saw uh, primarily, again, you know, 2007 all the way through, you know, 2011, um, Chicago Skyway, Indiana Toro Road, a lot of governments choose to monetize non-essential assets, right, uh, mm -hmm. a way to, to throw up budgetary gaps. And so, you know, going out with long-term concessions and obtaining a tremendous amount of upfront capital. Uh, more recently, though, we've seen P3s pursued from a, a risk disaggregation play. Um, why, why should a, a state and local government bear construction cost risk? Um, maybe there is a benefit in having uh, some private operations of non-core functions so that you can invite and solicit innovation to optimize assets. And so we've seen sort of this, you know, design, build, operating finance play that's and, and availability payment sort of structure that has taken wave in the U.S. vis-a-vis -vis an outright concession. I think that's here to stay. Mm -hmm. I think governments sometimes want to escape sort of the Byzantine procurement process. We often focus on the cost of financing, but we forget of the cost of construction. And governments are impeded on going out and securing long-term construction contracts and, and securing raw material sort of agreements if they don't have the dollars encumbered. And so they have to go out and bond or have some sort of short-term borrowing mechanism in order to do that. Um, outsourcing the building and construction of, of projects allows them to get these projects faster. Um, and sometimes even when you measure the, the decrease in cost of construction, get them done cheaper, even though they have a very efficient access to the tax exempt market. So I think P3s in various forms will continue. Mm -hmm. Not just born because people are looking for sort of a way to save dough and a way to eliminate costs, but just a way to deliver projects to the industry in a faster and more efficient way. I see. So if I had to step back and look at all the sectors, I know you're a head of infrastructure at your firm. Do you see any other sectors that are potentially in trouble besides um, like anything in specific that comes to your mind? Well, currently, you know, we've seen uh, uh, some distress in the assisted living and long-term care facility. This is just borne on primarily by COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, these, these places have been impacted more uh, precipitously by COVID than other areas. And so we've seen a couple of defaults on debt service payments in, in this round. That's probably where the strain is most concentrated. As we look at sectors within infrastructure, airports, transits, those entities and credits that are impacted more by the, the decreased users have, have seen a precipitous sort of decline in revenues and that's caused some strain. But that said, 
there's still stability out there. And people know that these are monopolistic assets that are, are 30-year bets, not one-year bets, and we'll get through this. And so we've been able to get airport uh, deals done, transit deals done. We even completed a deal last week for St. Louis Convention Center, mm-hmm. um, which is a little counterintuitive in this market. But again, you know, investors, once they are prized of the not only the, the financial metrics and, uh, and, and in clear about what those hurdles look like, but also are comfortable with the political will of stakeholders in those entities to make the tough decisions, um, as, uh, concerns can be assuaged. And, you know, while investors are always trying to extract as much yield as they can, um, the art of selling credit stories has become more in vogue, and we're really working with our issuers around the country to be on the front line in, in making sure that they not only are clearly articulating to investors um, the financial and operating metrics, but also subjective factors and making sure they demonstrate a political will to make the tough decisions. Well, in, in what you just said, you, you mentioned two key words I'm going to touch upon. I'll, I'll make it a two-pronged question. The first is that you said the word default. I want to go back to, let's say, if, let's say Trump is reelected and the hope of a similar sort of stalls and Republicans somehow take control. Do you see any defaults in the future in any sector or any um, in those aspects? Well, I think first, before we get to defaults, you have to recognize that there are only 12 states that are authorized to actually file Chapter 9 bankruptcy. Uh, for general purposes, and then there's another 12 states that have so, sort of conditional authorization. Um, so bankruptcies are still rare and will be rare in, in, our, in our space. Um, they are extremely costly, time-consuming. Mm-hmm. That long-term reputation, takes a, it takes a long time to get out of it. I mean, Detroit is finally climbing out of right. Out of sort of reputation uh, pool that it was in, um, and then over time, you know, these bankruptcies lease or increased taxes, higher user fees, and even you know the cost of emergency managers and lawyers. Uh, it's, it, it, it really is an onerous process, and so I don't think you're going to have a bevy of defaults. You know, I think that's the reason the municipal market has survived a tremendous amount of economic cycles where we've seen downturn after downturn and still have limited amount of, of defaults. In fact, there have only been 31 bankruptcies since 2001, and uh, that means filed, right? And of the right. 31 filed, 12 of them were dismissed because folks found that it was too costly to go through the process. So I, I don't think you're going to see a wave of bankruptcy. Now, will there be significant credit differentiation in the municipal market? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Are we over this era where we had a scarcity of a volume and a tremendous amount of demand that would overcome investor concerns. And will we start to see more penalties paid for credit hurdles? You betcha. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've seen already 50 bond issues that have some sort of default on, or on, on their uh, debt service payment. And I think it's about $5 billion in total, right? Um, and you, you have another two dozen or so who are now drawing on reserve funds. So there's definitely some pain out there, and there's definitely some distress, uh, primarily brought on by COVID. Um, and so I think once that's abated, we'll see uh, a resurgency uh, of economic vitality that's going to help these governments re- rebound. Right. But in the meantime, as a bondholder, if I'm looking for yield, where where should I look as a bondholder? If you're looking for yield, right? Uh, And it's funny you say that, right? Because I would have said, well, you know, you want to go to, again, those places that will be disproportionately impacted by COVID, so airport transits, right? But then 
I saw the state of Illinois, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the state of Illinois was um, a place early on um, this summer that had to use the MLF program. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it, it actually has a tremendous amount of strain, um, barely uh, investment grade. Um, but yet, they go out with a competitive deal this past week, $850 million, mm-hmm. and traded it, 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 the, the performance was inside secondary trading levels a couple of weeks ago. So that thirst for yield is really, really pronounced in our market, um, such that even though you have some credit challenges, when you have investors competing with one another for, for bonds, um, that closes the gaps and, and, and tightens spreads. Um, so there, there is definitely some yield opportunities out there, but those sometimes that can be trumped by the competitive competition for that yield. Mm-hmm. And those issuers who are extremely forthright in disclosing their credit challenges um, can, can create that uh, competition to swing leverage their way uh, when they're in the market. And we saw that more recently with the state of Illinois. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that state because my next question is uh, regarding the city of Chicago in Illinois. And I want to talk about your, you know, you worked there in the mayor's office, but this week, Mayor Lori Lightfoot presented her budget to the city council for fiscal year 21. But if you combine fiscal year 20 and 21, there the city is facing roughly a $2 billion deficit, which is the, the largest in the gap, budget gap in, in, in the city's history. And you were mentioning the MLF, which is the Fed's Municipal Liquidity Facility Program. So what's on the table for Chicago? What can they do? Are, can, can, can they issue pension obligation bonds? Give me your take on this. Well, uh, I should say this at the outset. The city of Chicago, I, I bank a very few clients um, directly. Um, that's one of them, given how close it is to my heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to be somewhat judicious as to, to what I say because we're working in concert with them. Uh, I have a tremendous amount of confidence in um, the staff ranks there and their ability to navigate uh, tumultuous situations. And so that, gives, that also uh, lends itself to investors. About two or three years ago, I think it started with the chief financial officer, Lois Scott, Carol Brown has, and, and now Jenny Bennett has as mm-hmm. well, where they actively engage investors and provide real-time information to make sure that there's just tremendous amount of transparency. Um, and so, uh, and that's one of the reasons that I think when they hit the market that they sometimes outperform where you might think they would given their, where they are on the credit spectrum. That said, uh, Chicago, Philadelphia, Dallas, they have less than half of the financial resources they need to pay their existing pension liabilities, and, and that's a great driver of the strain. So the MLF program, uh, while it's there as a last resort, is still a very costly alternative. Mm-hmm. alternative. Um, it's only made sense for a couple of credits at the time, especially early in the pandemic where we had a, a significant liquidity crisis. Um, they've made some modifications and they've decreased the cost by 50 basis points, but we're still seeing that, that our market is more efficient than it was at the early start of, of, the, of the pandemic. And, and most issuers are finding they can get a cheaper um, cost of borrowing in the public markets than the MLF. It does afford some flexibility, and you saw that with the state of Illinois needing that flexibility. But again, um, the state of Illinois, I think, in, in, in May went out with the MLF and got an interest rate of 3.82%, right? Mm-hmm. They're inside that um, in their deal this, this past week. So it just means that, you know, as you compare different apples to apples, it's not just 
the, the cost of borrowing that would, would drive issuers, even the city of Chicago, uh, to use the MLF, it will be what flexibility is afforded in amortization and allow them to somehow get out of the, the budget strain they're in right now. Very interesting. So let's sort of switch gears. I want to just ask a, lot, a, few, a few more questions and let's wrap it up of your, as I mentioned, your distinguished background. You were former chair of the MSRB. Give us your thoughts while you were there and give us your state of play in terms of the whole market now regarding disclosure, compliance, like all these key words that people talk about. Give us your thoughts. Well, I, I, I can tell you uh, one of the things that I was, were two things I was, three things I was really focused on when I was chair was one, making sure that the MSRB was prepared to regulate the market of tomorrow, not just the market of today, mm -hmm. right? And so as we see an increasing amount of AI in our market, as we've seen uh, the emergence of ESG investors, and as we've seen a, a move from you know, mom and pop retail to professional retail, how are we serving that marketplace? And so we had to make some tough decisions on making investments on a technological basis to prepare ourselves, and we made a huge leap by migrating to the cloud as opposed to having physical data centers. Mm -hmm. um, and the person who led that was Mark Kim, who's now the CEO. Right. Uh, he did a phenomenal job in that process. So I, I was really, really concerned in making sure we prepare for the future. Secondly, the SEC Chair Clayton was really, really focused on disclosure in our market. He was particularly focused on the timeliness of annual reporting and trying to close the gap of disclosure that we have in our muni market than what we see in the corporate fixed income market. There are some nuances and some struggles that, that we have in, in a municipal market that is unique to our market and that will always make it challenging to have disclosure as timely as we see in the corporate market. But there are some things that the NSRB did to allow for uh, more access to information for, from, uh, to investors by using EMA pages and using the EMA system as sort of a repository of information, not just when you're in the market, but just generally. And then the SEC backed us up by saying if you're making statements or if there's information that's not on EMMA and is in a marketplace and, th and that investors can reasonably rely on, there's no higher regulatory burden um, with information on EMMA than it is when you said in, in, in your uh, city council room. Um, and so that decreased sort of the, the, the reticence to, to use EMMA as a repository of information to keep investors informed, and that was important to me. And then lastly, it was how do we reduce the number of useless rules, right? Um, I'll give you one example that I thought was just incredulous, right? Mm -hmm. We had a rule on the books that said that you must maintain a copy of the rules in every office. Well, as you know, I have a copy of the rules on my phone right now, right? And so we, we got at that. And so we really instilled a process uh, for taking a look at the rule book and deciding what rules make sense, what rules are no longer relevant, and how we can make this a more efficient marketplace. So those are the types of things that I was focused on. It's good to know that the current chair at CISC is also continuing that. Mm -hmm. And I'm happy Mark Kim, the current CEO, um, is an evangelist for making sure that our market uh, uses technology to the, the optimal way to, to, to enhance efficiency. Definitely. And, and I don't want to be presumptuous to our non 
public finance listeners out there. When you said the word Emma, I want to just clarify, it's not the name of a person. It's, it stands for Electronic Municipal Market Access, just to be clear to our non-public finance listeners out there. But uh, well, the way I say that is, is that if you think about the Edgar for the Mooney market. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. All right, uh, Gary, I've got just one last question for you, if you don't mind. Siebert William Shank, one of the, as I mentioned, the la one of the nation's largest minority and women-owned firms. Tell us your take on your firm in regards to today's, I guess, in a, in, a, in a gentle way of saying tumultuous climate, and what do you see happening in the future with your firm and the industry? Well, you know, um, I, I grew up at J.P. Morgan and um, was really blessed to have um, a tremendous amount of contributions to both my personal and professional development there and had the benefit of not only a strong brand to bring to my clients, but technical acumen and capital that was enormous, right? And Seabird, we have made a concerted effort to do two things that have inured benefit in the current uh, marketplace. And I'll get to your second question later. The first is we made a real investment in our banking team. Uh, we had had a strong reputation of being able to sell bonds, um, but you, you, our market had been a little bit more commoditized when we had a scarcity of, of volume and a tremendous amount of de demand. Selling bonds was, was not that uh, uh, onerous, right? Anybody can do it. You can put it out. It's like Field of Dreams. You put it out and, and they'll come. They'll come, right. Uh, and so how we had to distinguish ourselves and really engender credibility with clients was being, being able to provide ideas on some of the things that we're talking about, meeting financial objectives, how do you have, how do you structure capital improvement programs over time? How do you meet short-term liquidity crisis? And so we made a concerted effort to get some of the smartest bankers around uh, the country in different sectors to really uplift our banking team and be able to engender and foster confidence within the staff and the municipal advisor ranks in addition to being able to sell bonds. And so those places that had a commitment to inclusion, uh, we find ourselves climbing up uh, the, the, the syndicate ranks and, and getting more lead left opportunities on our elephant deal. So we just completed a billion deal for the city of New York, right? Mm -hmm. And we're the first DFW tapped us to be the first airport deal of some substance to get one done early in, during the pandemic. The same thing with Chicago Transit Authority. So we're very, very proud of those sort of accomplishments. I can tell you where we are still facing some reticence in being able to penetrate is in the higher ed and the healthcare space. Mm -hmm. And that's particularly disconcerting when you you given the fact that in healthcare in particular, some of the demographics that are being served reflect the hue of our firm. And we're both, we're proudly an African-American and Hispanic and woman-owned firm. And those communities that have been disproportionately impacted by COVID, we believe that you know, a lot of a lot of those healthcare entities that are serving those communities should also be receptive to the value proposition that we can add um, in in financing some of the costs that they're they're, they're bearing. So we we've got some wood to chop in that area. The same thing uh, in, in in higher ed, uh, where we've seen this year an uptick in volume. So higher ed and and healthcare represent a larger composition of the aggregate mini volume than it has in years past. And while that is that that is positive for the mini market has not been uh, positive for MBE firms. Um, we are better positioned today to compete in all markets with the, with, with the, the merger of Williams that has a first 
rate investment grade corporate desk and had been the preeminent leader in, in issuing fixed rate paper on from the NDE perspective um, on the corporate side. So now that a lot of our issu issuers are tapping our the taxable market, taxable market is, is, is way up, over $50 billion higher this year than it was last year, which was over $70 billion higher the year before. And so our ability to sell taxable debt with taxable QCIPs is better today than it was, let's say, a year ago, so we're well positioned. Um, as it relates to our ability to help our governments navigate the sensitivities in social justice, we are unapologetically, unashamedly committed to being involved corporate citizens. And we work with our state and local issues however we can to solve their financial issues. And when asked, um, given the leaders we have with Suzanne Shank and Henry Cisneros and Chris Williams and myself and Bill Thompson, uh, we have a wealth of experience to offer uh, a lot of our municipal issuers uh, when tapped. Um, we do this without fanfare. We do it when it's appropriate. We don't solicit it. But we think that we are a trusted business partner that can help in, in, in a lot of different ways. Definitely, and, and and thank you for uh, for that. But Gary, uh, we're out of time. But thank you so much for your time today. We hope to bring you back in the future and get more of your wisdom and your background. But always a pleasure to have you on the show. All right, everybody, put on your mask, wash your hands, and practice social distance. <laughs> we can get yes, through this. Yes, sir. We will. Thank you very much, Gary. Okay. Be well. And that's our show for today. Many thanks to Gary Hall, a partner with Siebert Williams and Shank and Co. Uh, thanks to Christian Ayala, our producer, for making us sound good. And many thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in week after week for the latest on Distress Media Debt on the Media Lowdown. Take care, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Media Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.